Press Hoops podcast. I'm Noah Cohan, and today we uh, sadly do not have John Early with us. He had a last-minute obligation come up, but that's okay. I will uh, van the ship solo. Well, not entirely solo, because we do have a guest, a wonderful guest that I'm excited to get to, and that guest is Michael Allen. Michael works as an academic researcher, historian, teacher, design critic, public artist, critical spatial tour guide, and heritage conservationist. The binding ties in his research are investigation of the ideological and political constitution of architectural and infrastructural space, study of claiming material heritage and the politics of its conservation, and inquiry into the forms of liberatory agency that realize the potential of the modern metropolis to distribute wealth, knowledge, and shelter. Currently, he is Senior Lecturer in Architecture, Landscape Architecture, and Urban Design at the Sam Fox School of Design and Visual Arts, as well as, importantly, in relation to me, (laughs) Lecturer in American Culture Studies, or AMCS, here at Washington University in St. Louis. Allen's university teaching has focused on interdisciplinary investigation of architectural history, cultural dimensions of landscape, historic preservation, political power and urban space, and the racial histories of U.S. cities. He also serves as executive director of the National Building Arts Center, an anti-museum of the American built environment rooted in the largest collection of architectural artifacts in the U.S., as well as a comprehensive research library on the U.S. built environment. What an impressive resume. Welcome, Michael. Wow, it's great to be here. Uh, it's good to see you, Noah. Um, yeah, I'm glad you're impressed. <laughs> well, like... I am I am the, the child and brother of, an ar- of architects. So uh, though I am not uh, that well personally trained in the built environment, I'm constantly surrounded by folks who care a lot about it. And over the years, getting to know you and your work on St. Louis, a city that I've now lived in for 15 years, has enriched my understanding of that built environment so much here in St. Louis. So thank you for taking the time to join us. I thought we might begin by talking about that work, your engagement with the built environment and your work with the National Building Arts Center and how those projects reflect your priorities as a scholar. Right. Well, I guess to to outside eyes often you know, some of the things I'm working on simultaneously do not appear related. I mean, if you're sort of a binary thinker, maybe this work kind of is a little befuddling. You know, what is, say, my um, Divided City Mellon funded project on mass housing between post-socialist Europe and the U.S. have to do with the largest architectural artifact collection in the United States? And what do they have to do with basketball courts? <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to all that. Um but as as I think you alluded to in the bio that you so generously offered, I'm very interested in sort of more operative structures about space, how spaces work, uh, what spaces tell us about justice and the quality of life for all people. So I kind of follow different impulses around questions of investigation, you know, that center on what what is the built environment? have to say and i'm very very interested in uh am- sites of ambiguity and ambivalence missing places uh, misunderstood places uh, marginalized and stigmatized places because i think those offer the most interesting uh cultural lessons so as an architectural historian uh, hat i do claim sometimes although 
I don't know if, if you know if that have fits the right way sometimes uh, for some of the things I'm trying to do. You know, I'm not I don't follow styles or eras the way some other people do. I don't certainly do not really uh, predicate a lot of my research on specific designers, although they can they come up uh, a lot in my work. Um, but I'm interested in, I guess, the things you don't see when you're looking at a building or a landscape. So how that all relates to what I'm doing now at the National Building Arts Center, I think it's kind of maybe a little self-evident, uh, but there's a personal side to that too, because the National Building Arts Center in its infancy, before that name even existed, uh, was the project of a self-taught historian and architectural salvager named Larry Giles. And I was Larry's intern starting in 2004, assistant for a year after that, eventually a board member when this museum got off the ground. I created the name of the institution with him uh, in 2012. So that project to me was maybe one of the involvements that redirected my curiosity. I think before I met Larry and before I got involved in this project, I probably was, you know, I know I was going around the Midwest trying to find every building Louis Sullivan designed. So I might have, I might have gone down the more traditional architectural historical rabbit hole. But the work of the National Building Arts Center is really kind of the, the deep curiosity around the material forms of the built environment that come from, you know, often very, very terrible uh, stories, demolitions of entire neighborhoods, destructions of, of uh, people's whole way of life, uh, buildings that are, you know, wrecked uh, because they're in the way of urban renewal, but more often than not, uh, they simply were just seen as waste. And so, you know, we have this great collection of materials and I can't give you the precise number, but it's like for one in three, maybe something replaced the building, but in at least the other, you know, two out of the three times, the building probably ended up being replaced by a vacant lot. So that's kind of an agonizing place. And it, the practice that Larry instituted to try to recover entire building elevations or big pieces uh, was seen as an aberration by early preservationists. But that's not preservation. That's kind of a little more like, a, I don't know, the work of a a mortician. It's a grim work. And, you know, and he started as a businessman. He he had to sell some of these materials to subsidize the collecting of others. So that was always sort of a question, a mark for preservationists. But, you know, times have changed. Larry was posthumously awarded Missouri Preservation's Lifetime Achievement Award, the Rozier Award last year. So I think, you know, preservation has come a long way to wrap its head around maybe saving the pieces and having the pieces to reflect upon, to, to inquire about is a useful practice. Uh, and maybe specifically because the dissolution of a building and it's, it's piling up on pallets and in crates inherently is uncanny. It is not how we want to see the built environment. It is not the ideal image, right? Uh, so it's, it's dismantling opens up all sorts of new questions, not, what style is it? Who designed it? But how did it come to be piled out in this yard in Sage, Illinois? <laughs> what what the story there? You know, why didn't anyone care about it? Why didn't the neighborhood win the victory to save this building in place? Right, which you know opens up questions about class, race, and political power. So yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it's it's really very deeply connected to um to my scholarly interests. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing about the National Building Arts Center that it's just how vast the collection is. There's literally a point of entry for almost everybody's 
specific interests. Um, I don't think we have any sports uh, <laughs> any sports uh, artifacts. We might have some meat art uh, pieces from a gymnasium, some lockers and things mm. like that. But, um, they're a local company. No, um, no piece of the St. Louis Arena was uh, preserved before <laughs> demolition. Oh, we have um, we do have um, both a structural tile from the arena and. One of the lamella roof joints from the arena roof that uh, Bob Professor Bob Hansman gave me and I donated to the National Building Arts Center. So very cool. We, there, we, well, there we go. We've got <laughs> and we have the plaque from Walsh Memorial Stadium, St. Louis University's um, mm. stadium uh, that mm -hmm. has only lived like twenty years from the thirties to the fifties. So it's kind of a very that's the kind of piece I really like that Larry didn't personally salvage that that came to us long after the building was gone, but somebody else squirreled it away, you know, and, and it's still out there in the world. There's a library that goes with this collection that's, that is about half a million volumes. It's really global in scope, and that covers urban planning, labor history, uh, even some literary history from St. Louis, a uh, special interest of Larry. I don't know, it's like you you could really set someone loose who does, does not think inherently they have any interest in architecture our construction, and they'll find something that provokes interest and, and delight. I guess that's, at the best, I, we call it an anti-museum because we're not trying to become a traditional place. But when you think about a museum, like the best museums are places where anybody with general curiosity can become engaged pretty quickly, spend a couple hours and, and, and really come out enriched. So um, while our collection sounds very specific at the first blush, when people actually visit it, I think it's 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 so much more uh, holistic and open-ended. Well, thank you for that really exciting primer. I ha have not had the pleasure yet to visit. I certainly plan to visit at the latest uh, when my father, the aforementioned architect, comes to town because I know he will be uh, in heaven <laughs> looking at all those artifacts. All right. I'm glad you mentioned the absences because that's something we think a lot about with regard to the role of basketball in the in the sporting landscape of St. Louis and its absence from, you know, basically south of the Del Mar Divide. Forest Park specifically is, has been our focus, but I was interested in how basketball intersects with your work, specifically with regard to recent presentation you made about the community around Lafayette Square Park and the role of basketball in community conversations about the built environment. Can you share more about that research you've been doing? Definitely. I've long been interested in a critical stance toward historic preservation. Uh, I'm in the field. I'm a practitioner. I'm a, so I have a fealty to its, its core values and the impulse, obviously, with National Building Arts Center and other things that I do, the impulse to save things, to save the actual object forms. Um, but I'm also very curious about how uh, the methods that are prescribed through official mechanisms like historic district designations enshrine certain values and exclude others. You know, I, I think preservation is not a neutral practice. Very few, almost no cultural practices can be constituted as neutral and objective, not to sound all postmodern, but uh, something like Lafayette Square, where I've been doing this research, on the surface looks like this kind of seamless and coherent masterpiece of historic preservation. It's picture perfect. Literally, the look of the late 19th century has been sustained and in many cases recreated with infill housing and restoration. So most people really enjoy it. It's beautiful. It's on calendars. It's on posters. You know, uh, you go to their neighborhood website and literally the banner across the top says, we've saved a place for you. So it's like, this is what preservation is all about. So leave it to me to say not so fast there's more <laughs> to the story here and so for years i've been very fascinated the historic district code enshrines certain colors that 
you can paint your house. And it's a range of pastels and, and, and some brighter colors that are tightly regulated. They have, you have to approve exterior painting, you know, through the cultural resources office, a government agency that upholds these rules. This palette by, is, is sort of accepted by many people in the neighborhood as an appropriate range of colors. But in the 19th century, when these houses were built, there would have been maybe four or five commercially available paint colors, you know, red, green, black, white, all lead based. Nobody would be painting stone or brick at that period. Those cornices today that are like three or four color, you know, patterns would have been single colors probably. So there's a storybook aspect in this code that really originates in 1960s uh, St. Louis rehabber culture in the neighborhood, which is largely why and, and largely reflective of the values of an ascendant upper middle class. You know, middle class people buying these houses to build wealth. Um, you know, they're young professionals. So there's there's a lot uh, on the table there where they're gaining uh, insights from these these other historic districts and that are have brighter colors in places like San Francisco and Boston. Um, so they're transmitting that through their own sort of judgments into a legal code that then is enforced, you know, now for 40 plus years later, we're still going through that. But that code has no material basis in the architectural history of these buildings. Yet it's presented as a historic preservation code. It's really, you know, sort of a hegemonic taste code. It is an imposed set of values. So this is the kind of work I was doing. But I began to become more and more curious about an episode that I remember as a St. Louisan from watching television news as a teenager, which is the draconian sort of sudden midnight removal of the basketball backboards and hoops from the basketball court in the, the Lafayette Square Park uh, on June 2nd, 1997, which came after sort of a, a long set of battles over the courts and their appropriateness for the neighborhood. Some of that was coded in the historic preservationist language of, you know, this is a Victorian walking park. These courts, which were added during the model cities era, you know, an urban renewal, they, they, they should never have been imposed on this beautiful um, English picturesque park, much like the public housing projects three blocks to the east. This is an assault to the traditional vernacular built environment that St. Louisans cherish. But there's a lot more overt language if you read through new, newspaper and archival sources about um, the culture of urban basketball being seen as inherently criminal and this sort of criminalization of the players who are mostly African-American, but not exclusively, and predominantly are coming from those public housing projects that don't have their own courts at that point. And those courts were put in that neighborhood park to serve the larger area, including the public housing residents. It's basically their neighborhood too, right? Although it doesn't read that way today, and you know the neighborhood Lafayette Square has been very good at uh, closing streets and, and and encouraging the construction of a parkway that now runs between the neighborhood and the re reconstructed public housing developments to the yeah. east. So there, Lafayette Square really seems like a little bubble. But the intention of those courts were to kind of to reach across those those dividing lines and to to sort of serve a you know a, a large mile radius around this park. Here's basketball. We know there's all these public housing residents. We know there's people who want these courts. There's schools that don't have the facilities. So these were busy courts. But to these rehabbers and, and others who come in that are more affluent, a lot of them coming in from St. Louis County, 
there's a lot of uh, anxiety about the presence of these players. And, you know, the 1990s are a time ripe with crime panic. This is an era of the omnibus crime bill, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, super predators, Giuliani in New York, Donald Trump, urban crime hysteria, crack cocaine. So residents are alleging that the courts are the epicenter of drug dealing, that the basketball behavior is fight, it's gang activity, it's a turf war. And as you well know, you know, this is something that's plagued urban courts in, in New York where, you know, similar allegations were made by people who misunderstood what they were watching. Uh, but there's a encoded uh, set of behaviors on the court that have nothing to do with gangs or drugs or crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I guess the real uh, problem is there's a beyond like this, whatever's really happening. It's just a perceptual rift and, and, and vision between the sort of ascendant class by the by the 90s, the dominant neighborhood resident is no longer somebody running a room in one of these houses that's been turned into apartments, um, working class people. It's now affluent people who have reconverted these houses into their original mansion or townhouse forms, living in you know single dwellings in kind of an opulent setting. And the courts seem like one of the last things they need to get rid of in addition to the public housing. And so while this debate's happening, there's also a huge set of... Uh, public meetings about the future of the first Webby and Clinton Peabody projects. And not long after that, they get completely um, rebuilt through Hope 6 and all those towers are demolished. So there's a coordination here. But in the end, the the players did not win. Uh, Then there were neighborhood advocates for the players. There are people in the neighborhood, even rehabbers who weren't offended. There's even one letter in the Post-Dispatch from a man named Keith Welsh that you know, he says he's he's seen all the things that people have alleged on the courts in the park, but not on the courts that, you know, the public urination. Oh, yeah, there's people that are just regular users of the park. He's seen urinating in the bushes. <laughs> and he's seen mm-hmm. people profanity and drug use that are way off the courts. So he said the basketball is not the problem. And other people are saying, well, we this is extremely emphatically racist. And Lafayette Square is, is a, you know, a place that embodies liberal values, so we, we shouldn't be doing this. But then there's many more arguments that good riddance, now the neighborhood can live in peace. This isn't racist. This is just about public safety, noise. This is about having your kids being able to walk in the park safely, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a really interesting moment where, again, to my research interest, the values of historic preservation are used in by some parties here to justify removing a public amenity. I mean, let's don't also forget this is a public park. This park right. doesn't belong to these rehabbers. Right. This is one of the oldest dedicated public parks in the city. It was dedicated in 1835 as a public space in perpetuity. So it doesn't just belong to the neighborhood. I mean, this is something that I'm sure you're in your work, you've encountered in other neighborhoods where the city park system, we have 105 parks and, and anybody can use these parks. You don't even have to live in the city, right? I mean, they're open mm-hmm. for all. Mm-hmm. Forest Park is such a good example. It's like most, many of the people who use Forest Park don't even live in St. Louis. It's proper, right? I mean, it's a regional uh-huh. destination. So uh, the idea of local control can be a real sort of betrayal of the publicness of these places. But neighbors do feel sometimes they have the right to, you know, usually to enhance these places. Like, oh, we need better swing set. We need uh, benches. And they, you know, in my neighborhood in Marquette Park, we've, we've raised money to put in pool furniture at the public pool. But then on the other hand, you know, like Lafayette Square episode illustrates, the residents often think they can police these spaces as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, down down no to the colors of paint. 
<laughs> yeah, and then neighborhood ownership extends to to public spaces like sidewalks and parks. I love the juxtaposition of the 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 sort of fake history of the color palette in relation to the sort of fake reasons for why this is a totally normal and justifiable thing to do, right? That it's not racism, right? There's right. the same level of like a, a veneer of, of like euphemism <laughs> that is covering up what is at base, not grounded in anything other than, than people's irrational fear. And, and about 10 feet away from where the basketball courts used to be, and they're completely gone. I mean, it wasn't just enough to decapitate the, the, the posts, but uh, they actually, you know, eventually the neighborhood got the city to fund complete removal of the asphalt court and it's just now a lawn like it was never there so they won the restoration battle there but 10 feet away is a modern children's playground with primary bright primary colored plastic parts you know in the middle of this park mm -hmm. so it's like talk about uh betrayals of their supposed standards for both color and uh restoration of victorian you know park <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there should be children's play amenities in every park, but there should also be the basketball courts. Absolutely. So did I hear you say something about them being removed like overnight? Did they? They were removed in the middle of the night um, at the direction of Mayor Clarence Harmon, who had just defeated the city's first black mayor, Freeman Bosley Jr. And Harmon was also black, but he was the police chief and he ran on this law, law and order platform. And there was all these specious allegations of corruption against Bosley's administration. He couldn't walk down the street without it seeming, seemingly one of the white television reporters, usually Mike Owens at KSDK, saying that whatever he's doing is illegal. There's something wrong happening. You know, this happens to a lot of urban black political leadership. It's still happening, right, where uh, Mayor Jones is facing this in St. Louis today, where it's mm -hmm. like Kimberly Gardner, the circuit attorney, where there's this sort of narrative of public corruption and the same actions and same sort of uh, perceptions around behavior with white politicians is excused or not even publicized. But, you know, if someone so much as uses their city-issued cell phone to order a pizza after five o'clock, it's a scandal, right? And so Bosley was plagued with these kinds of problems. And one of the specific sort of incidents was this program called Midnight Basketball to keep the rec centers open at night, to keep teenagers from scaring Suburban white folks being out on the streets, you know, the kind of behavior that we're now dealing with with downtown with the Lime Scooters, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to leave the rec centers open, then they can come and play basketball. You know, it was also to protect the teenagers from from gunshots and violence in their neighborhoods. So it's like, there's a safe, sheltered, supervised place, 24-hour basketball. Great idea. But a couple people that worked in the program apparently you know it seems like <laughs> took advantage of cell phones in the 90s i don't know what these cell phones look like <laughs> probably, <laughs> bricks <laughs> probably couldn't even make a long distance call on one of those but um without you know a hundred dollar fee but and then maybe drove some city issued cars on the weekends with their family i don't know it's like yeah whatever they deserve some kind of punishment but it's not exactly some real public scandal but owens and other reporters used it to try to railroad them in my basketball program to try to insinuate that basketball and the culture around it had something to do with this black political criminality. Mm. It's deeply racist, but it's, of course, all cloaked in the language of good order and respectability, et cetera, et cetera. This leads Harmon to, you know, go after basketball in, in a big way because he's his constituency are these people who were afraid and offended by what Bosley was doing. And so he's very showy about the removal of the Lafayette Square basketball court. It's very interesting, too. I have a meeting soon with the former alderman 
uh, Merritt Clark, who had represented that neighborhood during this episode, she had run for mayor also in 1997 against Bosley and Harmon. Uh, well, uh, she switched to an independent and ran in the general against Harmon, lost. But she came out of the base. She was one of those do-it-yourself rehabbers and, and, and you know, part and parcel of that um, culture in the neighborhood. But she was against the removal and said that, you know, it was hasty and that some more work should have been done to try to create some kind of truce between the players and the and the neighborhood residents who were offended. So much for local control, right? It's like the alderman who usually dominates in St. Louis and controls didn't even want this to happen, but the mayor had this done in the middle of the night and the post-dispatch the next morning has the reporters got wind and they were waiting there in the morning. Mm. Uh, they interviewed players who showed up with their balls and like couldn't play. Oh, it's no. it a really bizarre moment, but I think Harmon orchestrated it to show his base that he had done what they were wanting. Like mm. He was taking action against crime in public parks. All really, really false narrative, you know, of course. And followed by, you know, again, the complete removal. So now it's like <laughs> if we wanted to return basketball to Lafayette Square, the courts would have to be completely rebuilt and somebody would have to brook the debate again with the neighborhood uh-huh. even more heavily solidified in terms of, especially in terms of class Lafayette square today i think it's the average household income is eighty seven thousand eight hundred ninety three dollars citywide it's forty five thousand seven hundred eighty two it's like this is almost double the citywide average median income i think is like in the 60s uh the citywide it's like twenty nine thousand. so the neighborhood was much more economically and racially diverse when the removal happened than it is today. So I don't know how that would play out, but yeah, of efforts like like whereas hoops and the return to Forest Park, I I could see somebody proposing a return to Lafayette Square at some point. I think in terms of these kinds of symbolic acts of reparation, it would be a tremendously good thing for St. Louis to put courts back in that park. Mm-hmm. Turning some attention to that in light of hopefully the courts coming to Forest Park and, and Tower Grove Park's announcement that in their new master plan that they will ins- reinstall hoops because they also took out hoops at some point. At Lafayette Square Park in this new, more progressive era of city politics may soon um, be facing this issue again, and, and they should. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. it's a classic example of a racist association of criminality with with black people and an association based on popular culture of basketball with with black people right it's true that lots of black people love basketball but everyone loves basketball it's a really accessible beautiful game and i think uh, there's also something poignant in the juxtaposition of mayor bosley's vision for basketball as something that unites that mm-hmm. you know while not a panacea can be a social good provide a social uh, benefit juxtaposed to this fear-mongering with the, this overnight removal of of the courts in that park is so terrible but also just the irony of it is 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 so poignant right i was also thinking and thinking about this park because i like a lot of parents have brought my children to play on that playground right adjacent to where those basketball courts used to be and uh, one walks around the park you're, you know it's a, one of these ambulatory pastoral spaces mm-hmm. intentionally and you come across um some statues and one of the statues is of of thomas hart benton and i'm reminded yeah. of walter johnson's book and and at his positioning benton as the precedence that benton set for for the removal of indigenous peoples became kind of st louis's mo for the pushing out the dispersal the removal of black st louisans from spaces that that white St. Louisans wanted to to be in. And this seems to be just another example of that. So to me, there's also some irony in that statue of, of Benton being in the park. Yeah, no, I mean, the public meetings um, that are allowed to be sanctioned in 
parks. Again, another area where, uh, you know, we we see a lot of um, the contradictions of our um, city government there. This statue is sanctioned. It has been restored. I'm not necessarily calling for any removal, but it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Benton is standing there. There's also cannons next to Benton that are from the Revolutionary War, but they're from a British ship, our supposed opponent. You know, so it's like there's no rhyme or reason in the, in the whole landscape of monuments. It's such a strangely um, contradictory one. Um, but the idea that we could have Benton standing there all these years and not the basketball courts, very, very weird. Um, the Benton neighborhood residents probably, you know, maybe they don't know, but it's like he represents a really odious strain. Um, I'm sure most people in Lafayette Square probably didn't vote for Trump or would not embrace the mega kind of agenda. Mm-hmm. A lot of Black Lives Matter signs in the neighborhood and in, in yards. But Benton's politics are really commensurate with that kind of spirit today, right? It's Absolutely. Just like, we're going to create a secondary class of citizenship. We're going to bifurcate this nation. We're going to, uh-huh. you know, we're not going to cede uh, the strength and power of white supremacist politics. We're going to protect it. I wouldn't want Benton in 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 the park in my neighborhood. That's for sure. It's like, yeah. uh, whatever value he had to, <laughs> to the neighborhood i guess he's one of the early residents and laid out benton place this private street that's another social question there though the first real cul-de-sac in st louis is in the neighborhood and so you know i, I take students there it's like you it, within 30 minutes you can walk from like the corner park uh in mississippi to benton place into the park to the statue and then over to the basketball court site and you've kind of laid out so many problems with historic preservation and with place keeping and with the illusion of like liberal progressive neighborhood value. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for those who, who may be listening that don't know Walter Johnson's book, the broken heart of America, definitely recommend it. And, and Benton is one of the core figures that he uses to relate the, the displacement and genocide of indigenous peoples to the anti-black racism of that has sort of persisted in the city city of St. Louis. Really... The statues, uh, Plinth has the quote, to the east there is India, this, you know, gigantic imperialist statement by Ben is is inscribed there. So there's a lot going on. Uh, <laughs> One other thing back to basketball as a unification, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. And if anybody's listening <laughs> who might know of additional photos of the basketball courts in Lafayette, of course, it's a real struggle to find these. There's some people who think they've seen photos. I still haven't found them, but I found one post-dispatch photograph from 1994. And there's a like older um, white male and a young younger black male playing basketball. And this is three years before the hoops are removed. And, and the only image is the sort of unification you know, ideal of Bosley's. And maybe that photo was staged. I mean, this is during Bosley's administration, but it, it is a really, it's interesting that that's the one public image the newspaper ever printed of the courts. And it's it's showing something very different than these narratives that were coming out of the neighborhood three years later. Yeah, and also in terms of um, public uh, imagery, it's like, you know, you mentioned Forest Park and Tower Grove Park. And I think the Tower Grove Park leadership has been really trying lately to, expand a lot you know the sanctioned meetings and even to amend them with the removal of columbus um, and the daylighting of the the stream where um you know to restore the pre 
the pre-imposition of um, the English picturesque uh, landscape on that site. And even the Osage Nation were involved in, I think, the ceremony a few weeks ago to turn the water flow onto that creek. Forest Park has 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 a lot of work to do as well. It, as a regional sort of prestige landscape with all the museum assets and, and, and sort of institutional investment in that park, it's, it's something that serves more than just a city. It's interesting to do an inventory of what uses and monuments are found in that park. Mm-hmm. And there, it's extremely, again, kind of uneven, strange, you know? Yeah. Uh, so many people's uh, cultural values are missing from this supposed, like, hub. You know, basketball is not mm-hmm. there. Statues are, you know, it's a very weird set of statues in Forest Park from the, the Crusader King. Raises a lot of questions that I, two years ago, you know, uh, wrote an RFT piece on it, engendered some backlash. <laughs> like maybe, maybe we should question this presence of the statue. But also, Forest Park continues to attract these kinds of investments. That there's opportunities to embody uh, a more holistic approach, and often it's from the loop trolleys terminus at the History Museum to the Adventure Playground, which I had a small role in uh, as a professional consultant, but. More and more resources are are being placed in that park, often at the exclusion of putting those same resources or the same funding in other parks. Mm-hmm. So that's another question is, you know, it's an over-resourced park in a lot of ways, but does it really embody a collective spirit? Does everybody in St. Louis's idea about what a, should be in a park, can it be found in Forest Park? And if not, why are efforts not being made to amend and include more? And I don't have definitive answers. I'm just throwing this out there because... The lack of basketball in the largest park in, in the region is pretty glaring, right? And again, the public commemorations in that park, they're kind of random, but they again tilt towards white sets of, of idealistic power and, and noble figures uh-huh. like from more tolerable to people like Franz Siegel to more questionable people like Edward Bates. Uh-huh. Uh, to, you know, completely forgotten monuments like the Jewish tricentenary monument that Temple Israel built. It's just kind of sitting lonely that nobody really pays much attention to. I I, I don't know. It's just I, I think the work around uh, basketball is also a window into larger questions about representation. As you know, like a the nature of a city urban park as a cultural representational device and landscape. I mean, W. J. T. Mitchell, um, the the theorist, wrote that. Landscape is already representation also. Representations of landscape are double representations. So, you know, his his positive landscape representation doesn't begin with paintings of landscape where a lot of scholars start saying, you know, landscape comes from the paintings. Before we even know it's landscape, we have these paintings. He says, no, the, 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 the subjects of these paintings themselves are already representational because they're enshrining mm-hmm. uh, use values, you know, to, from from agriculture to, to military, but also cultural power, ideas of how to shape and who gets to shape and which lands are shaped and which lands are left not to, to be to be altered. And these are questions that Walter Johnson, you know, pulls back through in his book, mm-hmm. not under really the rubric of landscape, but there's so much uh, consideration of the spatialized aspects of power uh, in his book. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, uh, I wanted to both get a personal anecdote from you about your engagement with Forest Park and when you noticed or how long you've known (laughs) about the absence of courts, um, because some people know it 
automatically and and others seem to think that there are hoops in the park not realizing that uh that they are absent and then and then also given the the proposal that i'm sure you've seen to put hoops in the park and and the proposed location north of the visitors center just to the west of the handball courts what you think about if if hoops are actually built there what ways that might reshape the park and and who feels welcome there Definitely. Um, no, I mean, I came to Forest Park the first time as a first grader on a bus to the art museum. So, and I grew up in Illinois, you know, Monroe County, right across the river. But um, that just shows you everyone's coming to the park from all over the region, from near, you know, near and far. I probably wouldn't have noticed the hoops. I would have just assumed they were there. We had hoops in Columbia, Illinois, where I grew up in the public park. Rural kids were using basket. You know, we, nobody mm-hmm. were a problem. I think it was probably my, in my college years, uh, there was a big d- debate over uh, whether or not to put gates on the park designed by the landscape architect Lawrence Halpern. And that stirred up a lot of discussion around the future of the park, who it belongs to. I think that's when I noticed there were no basketball hoops in the park. Started paying more attention to the fact that an ordinate amount of space in a public park. I mean, I don't know any other city where this much public space in a, in, a, in a signature prestige park is given over to private golfing activity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, that that then has stuck with me for a long time. Why is all this golf in the park? And it's not free and open to all. You know, it is, it is restricted to membership. I mean, it's it's a lower cost than a lot of country clubs, but why is that here and not basketball? So I think that the, the basketball courts, the location is, is a great one because it's kind of a hub for recreation. I think it does send a message that the park is reopening its relationship. I mean, so much of the intake comes from Highway 40. So I think it's like it feels sometimes that Forest Park is really playing to the central corridor um, from St. Charles County all the way over to Belleville, which is more, you know, again, more affluent, more white. It's like only secondary that it thinks about serving its urban neighbors and those are more diverse than people realize so i think it's a great thing i also you know again to finally have basketball alongside the golf i mean i I would personally prefer to shrink the golf footprint in a public park but that doesn't seem to be happening (laughs) soon but um adding basketball is is great i hope it inspires um more you know in other parks like lafayette square tower grove is on the way i know but there's again it's like that the audience for basketball is vast uh i did not play basketball growing up but my sister did in in a small town in illinois mm-hmm. white family right you know it's like basketball yeah a lot of kids played basketball and they were all white in my town right there is a kind of rural <laughs> rural vision of basketball read white that you you see most associated with like indiana we have to uh-huh. go there. yeah it's like but if it's in a city all of a sudden basketball is only for black people <laughs> exactly. um in thinking about the 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 site north of the visitor center you know one thing that we're thinking about at Where's Hoops is the upcoming possibility for public meetings and the neighbors on the other side of Lindell on that sort of mansion row there. As we as we advocate for things like lights that allow people to play into the evening hours, especially during the winter, as we advocate for things like some stands for people to sit while they watch other people play. Given the context of Lafayette Square Park and the influential neighbors that you know we just discussed in 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 the removal of hoops in 1997, obviously you can't see the future necessarily, but but what is your feeling? Do you, do, you, do you anticipate that there might be some resistance there as we head into to these next stages of, of uh, the bureaucratic process? 
perhaps. Um, I think people should know, you know, one thing St. Louisans don't realize is that a, a part of Lindell East of Union to King's Highway is actually owned by the residents of those mansions. And, mm. you know, they, they give the city like a thoroughfare right-of-way use of it. So there's a tendency, I mean, this, the, thankfully, your site is not near the, that section where the legal right does extend all the way to the park. Um, but there's, you know, ways in which the residents of those mansions feel like the north end of the park is their territory and, and that they have this kind of extra juridical governance. <laughs> I hope there's no pushback. I would anticipate some. I would also point out, if there is any, that nobody uh, from those uh, mansions made, nobody was uncomfortable uh, living with a view of the Confederate monument for many years. Uh -huh. So um, again, talk, talking about what is a what is an offensive use of the park um, that certainly to me outranks uh, bright lights at night. I, I think the tennis uh, Dwight Davis Tennis Center they do have a curfew on their lighting, but it is often bright into the night, and there haven't mm -hmm. been any historic public conflicts there. So good point. That's something to to also think about. Um, mm -hmm. And that is very bright, you know. Something. Yeah. But I, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, again, it's an urban park. Uh, I think that's something else that another dynamic here is that St. Louis has a really great tolerance for these kinds of narratives that vitality, uh, cultural um, mixing, sound, uh, light, you know, these things should be restricted, that these things are somehow harmful or threatening. When to me, they're just the fruits of a metropolis. I mean, you know, a big park like Forest Park in the center of a region that serves the entire region. How is it not going to be a place that's loud and full of people? And, mm -hmm. you know, the, all the buses in and out of the zoo, art museum and history museum for tour groups. That could look like a nuisance to some people. But mm -hmm. well, St. Louisans think that's a good thing, right? We want these institutions to, to have an audience to be sustained. We want young people to learn and grow. But Mayor Bosley had it right. I think it's you know, twenty-four hour sporting facilities are vital. Youth, youth ought to be included in our civic structures and in our public spaces. And if we don't want the young people running around on scooters all night long, then what are the alternatives? Those spaces that are more inviting. I don't think anyone really wants to be riding around on scooters, but. When the parks are all shut down, some parks, you know, even my park, Marquette Park, has a sign posted, curfew, 10 o'clock p.m. Uh -huh. You're not supposed to be here. Well, I'm sorry, um, but 10 o'clock in a big city, especially on a Friday or Saturday, is, is not that late. I mean, we, we all want, we all talk about the 24-7 city as a sort of exciting American ideal, and then we constantly do everything we can to keep that from actually happening. And again, you know, we, we also forget that um, people under the age of 18, their their needs are as important as everybody else's in, in structuring cities and public parks. Um, and what they need is not going to be what some middle-aged banker or, or professor is going to want. You know, we might want the lights out on Lindell by 10 and the sound to be going away, but 16-year-old on a Friday night, they're just... They're getting ramped up. If their parents let them stay out till midnight, you know, they, they've mm -hmm. got four hours, right? So as a scholar of urban design, I see a lot of failure around children. And, um, you know, there's actually a great film 
that's on the Pruitt I Go Myth DVD, more than one thing by Steve Carver, that depicts these teenagers living in Pruitt Igo, and all they do is walk from Pruitt Igo into downtown. They go to Union Station and they throw some bricks in that movie, but they also go to parties, they play basketball, they play band instruments. And it's just like one thing you don't see is the parents. These kids are free mm. to roam the center of a big city. And it looks like a beautiful life, you know? <laughs> so, well, engaging with kids is something I've, we've thought about, too, in relation to what we'd like to see in the in the basketball facilities in the park. Because ideally, there would be some full courts for the more serious players, but also some half courts mm-hmm. so that while the serious games are going on, there's still shooting space for for kids and for just for other less serious players or just anybody who wants to warm up while the, while the games are going on. Because I can see the space becoming difficult to access for certain people if there's not enough hoops or if they're laid out in such a way that certain uh, versions of the game prevent other other people from playing so i hope i hope that access and equity in that way for kids and others will will be part of part of that design good point capacity Uh, you know (laughs) how i mean how big should these courts be i mean and 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 what how they should be arranged a single court being put back into a place like tower grove park is not enough probably right that's right yeah, I mean the Tower Grove Park tennis courts. I forget it. There, how many there are? Um, I think sixteen. That's a lot. Yeah, there's always people waiting to get in there. I mean, there's the, you. Yeah, all uh, recreational demands are. I mean, it's a good thing, St. Louis. Yeah, Shoto Park right by Forty there has has I think six hoops, but they're arranged in such a way that the two short short courts overlap with the full-size court so if anybody's playing full-size on the full-length basketball court you basically prevent it from playing on the on the shorter hoop so it's in one sense it's a design that seems to that seems good but in another sense if if enough people are there it's not going to be accessible to that many folks who do you you think designs these courts do you know (laughs) i actually don't know i should ask elder woman peel um about who was the designer for the shoto courts because i know she had a lot of input on those themes. Yeah, I think I think a lot of uh, park design, unfortunately, historically, has come from people who don't use the spaces they're designing, mm-hmm. so, and then that leads to these kinds of just oversights, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, this has been uh, a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you so much for for taking the time. I encourage everybody who's listening, if you made it to this point, to uh, check out the National Building Arts Center. And pay a visit over there because um, there's so as as Michael you were saying there's there's, there's a point of entry and a sort of accessibility uh, possibility for anyone who visits. Really appreciate your time. Anything else you'd like to to say before we go? Just thank you, Noah, for uh, such an engaging conversation and all the efforts with Whereas Hoops. You can follow my work at michael-allen.org if you're curious. Eventually, this Lafayette Square research will end up in publication. Uh, it's a ways off, but uh, I'm glad to have this conversation. It certainly will help shape uh, the next phase of that research, see how it fits into these bigger issues we've been talking about. So, Yeah, thank you. As soon as it's out, let us know. We'll certainly promote it. Whereas hoops, we want people to know this, this history. So. All yeah, right. Thanks, thanks Michael. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Travel with Grace, baby. I can-
can't afford to cover the course Of course, maybe settle that one in court Cause judging by the basics Y'all already comfortable, stuck up in the matrix